0: This is the Think Queerly podcast and I'm your host Darren Steele. On today's show, we're doing a longer discussion. I'll be sitting down to talk with Jeffrey J. Yobanone, who's been on the show a number of times in the past. He's a historian from Buffalo and he specializes in LGBTQ history of the United States. Now, he's working on a book about Buffalo's gay liberation movement from the late 1960s to the early 1980s. And this is the reason for today's show. Um, he published an article on June 1st titled Madeline Davis's Queer History of Buffalo. And there was a quote from Madeline Davis that was this We have a past, but not a history. And it got me thinking, and I was really intrigued by this article um, and what it meant and how Madeline Davis was somebody living in Buffalo, not like a big city like Toronto or New York or San Francisco, you know, sort of what would be considered the gay or LGBTQ meccas, but Somewhere smaller, and yet the huge effect that she has had on not only documenting history but preserving and archiving, and as somebody who was um, pivotal in working for the rights of LGBTQ individuals and overall advocacy in the In the history of the United States and for LGBTQ rights and equalities. So today's episode is titled We Have a Past But Not a History, the Various Dimensions of LGBTQ History, Leadership, and Community. And I think I'll just leave it at that and I hope you will enjoy the show. It is a very interesting dive into the different aspects of history, what that means, um, and how we as queer people are represented and the various ways in which that can happen. Okay? Enjoy the show. All right. Well, I am here to have a discussion interview with uh, Jeffrey Yovanone, who's been on the podcast a number of times before. So welcome back, Jeff.
1: Always happy to be back.
0: Yay. Well, we're going to talk about the... Emotional Dimensions of History, LGBTQ Leadership, and the Precariousness of Equality and Human Rights. Um, A little while ago, I guess it was on the 1st of June, uh, you had an article published on Belt Magazine, and you can tell us a little bit about that in a moment, uh, titled Madeline Davis's Queer History of Buffalo. And I wrote to you after reading it saying, wow, this is one of the sounds funny when I say it best articles I've read by you. It's not that I haven't read good articles by you before, but what was different to me about this article is um, this is someone, Madeline Davis, who you have looked up to, and we're going to talk later on about the whole idea of uh, icons and legends. And in a way inspired uh, the career path uh, that you have taken. Mm -hmm. And, there was an emotional resonance in how you wrote the article. And I think in part because she just passed away uh, not too long ago. So why don't I just lead in with that? So you can tell us a little bit about who Madeline Davis was and uh, her impact on you. And then we'll get into some of the the deeper topics as I suggested.
1: Well, Madeline was, Born in Buffalo in 1940, and I would argue that uh, she is one of uh, the most uh, significant figures in the LGBTQ movement uh, in the United States uh, for a variety of of reasons uh, that I can uh, outline. Um, But I think... um, doesn't uh always get the credit and recognition she deserves uh i think simply for the fact or primarily um because she was from buffalo stayed in buffalo did her right, advocacy there as opposed to a big city like new york or san francisco or uh, or Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of, uh, her noteworthy accomplishments, uh, she was an early member of the Madison Society in Buffalo, which is the first, uh, gay rights organization, um, here. She penned, uh, one of the, the first, um, if not the first gay liberation songs, uh, Stonewall Nation, which she wrote in 1971 uh, and recorded in in 1972. Uh, She was the first uh, lesbian to speak at and uh, present a a gay rights uh, platform at the Democratic National Convention uh, in 1972. Uh, She taught the first Class on lesbian history uh, at a major university in the United States. It was called Lesbianism, One Hundred and One. Um, mm-hmm. She authored or co-authored uh, with Elizabeth Kennedy the first um, history of a working class lesbian community. It was called Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, uh, which is published in nineteen ninety three. Uh, and then uh, after that book was published, uh, she. Assembled uh, one of the biggest archives of LGBTQ um, materials um, that exists outside a major city, again like New York or uh, or San Francisco. Uh, and so now that that archive, which documents the history of the LGBTQ community in, in Western New York, uh, is uh, housed at SUNY Buffalo State. Originally, it was in her garage (laughs) and then um Mm -hmm. uh don't she donated the collection to to buffalo state so that it could have a a more permanent uh home
0: well you mentioned um i mean and that that is quite a list of accomplishments Mm -hmm. that you know i i'm from canada you're from the united states i mean it's not always um it's not always on par our our understanding of history within our own uh, you know, within different countries like who were the leaders of the lgbtq or the gay movement or the lesbian movement or whatever um universally so i hadn't heard of madeline davis until i first read about her through you in in some articles you were writing uh quite some time ago um but you Cited the term metronormativity and the metronormative narrative of of queer existence, and that that's possibly why Davis hasn't received the recognition. So I'm wondering if it's also because she was a woman. But can you tell us a little bit more about the metronormative narrative of of history and and its effect on um, uh, queer histories and where we find ourselves living and celebrating who we are as queer people.
1: Sure, so that um term comes from the the work of Jack Halberstam uh who is a queer theorist. Uh and basically uh it's the idea that if you are a uh, queer person Who is from or living outside of a a big city? You can't have a self actualized life there. You can't, uh, live a fully realized life without, um, secrecy or, Mm -hmm. or persecution. So you have to go to one of these, um, large, uh, cosmopolitan cities and, um, Halberstam is a a cultural scholar. Um, and one of the things that, uh, we see is we see this kind of narrative repeating itself, um, over and over again in, you know, queer, um, novels, uh, films, uh, where, right. It's the, the person going from, uh, the, the small oppressive context and like finding, um, liberation in, in the big city. Um, when, you know, in, in reality, if we look behind the, the surface of that, um, what is it really saying right it, 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 it and is it a problem to and I think it is to say that you could only be a, a self-actualized queer person um if you're you know living in a certain context but if yeah. if you're not in a certain geographical area uh you know you must be uh suffering horribly or or your uh life uh doesn't mean as much or isn't as interesting uh, as, right, the lives of of queer people in a big city. I I uh, will say that I'm somewhat critical of this term uh, because I think, well, I think it's useful on the one hand. Um, I think that the term in and of itself um, is also metronormative in a way because I think it requires a certain uh, level of educational privilege in order to, uh, understand, right. And certainly, uh, you know, I think being able to access and understand Halberstam's, um, work requires a certain amount of, um, education and privilege. So I, um, prefer to use, uh, a different term, which I think, you know, says the exactly the same thing, but is more accessible, um, which is that we tend to look at, Uh, Queer history and experience um, through a bi-coastal lens. In other words, uh, everything important or at the center of of queer culture um, happens in big cosmopolitan cities that exist on the east and the west coast of Mm -hmm. um, the United States. But I think we could also, you know, apply that to. Uh, the context of um, Canada as well, right? If we look at, uh, you know, um, cities like Toronto or or Vancouver.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Vancouver's on the coast. Uh, Toronto is exceptionally far from any coast other than we're right on Lake Ontario. Uh, but, it, you know, I think the relevant point is large cosmopolitan cities, like you said. Um, and, you know, like you said it's it's a it's a nifty idea and i'm doing like air quotes um but you could be living in a large cosmopolitan city but you could also be working in an environment that is entirely prejudiced or racist or homophobic and you might not be able to live out who you are until you actually go out to some area in the city that there might be you know lgbtq bars or what have you so it's Yes, there's, there's truth to the idea, but there are also a lot of limitations. I I just want to read a quote from what you wrote in the article in this section, because I think it's a, a nice launching point for you to, um, share from the history and your own, uh, perceptions of history. So you write, I didn't have much exposure to LGBTQ history or culture within my formal education. I now see this as an aspect of the oppression LGBTQ people face. We are often denied access to our own histories, forced to seek them out on our own if we realize they exist at all because they are not part of the mainstream narrative. So please tell us more about that.
1: I think that's true of LGBTQ history in general. Um, But then right in alignment with the bi-coastal narrative or the, the metronormative narrative. um, I think that that is especially the case. um, If you are again uh, living outside or from outside one of those, uh, those larger coastal cities, right? Mm -hmm. Because if uh l g b t q uh history is included right we talk about uh stonewall or we talk about um harvey milk um or right, uh, uh those kind of um kind of key touch points that um that that people tend to know about when when we think about um mm-hmm. l g b t q history and I think, you know, if you're from a place like Buffalo or uh, Western New York or, you know, the, the Midwest or uh, the South or from a, a rural area, you really have to uh, seek that history out. Um, and the thing <laughs> I think the thing is, is that uh, you need to to know. Mm-hmm to look for it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think for such a long time um, in my life, I really had internalized this metronormative kind of narrative uh, and thought, uh, you know, nothing interesting uh, happens in in Buffalo. Certainly um, there's not any uh, LGBTQ history here. So I didn't even think to look. Mm-hmm. It, it just wasn't something that at all was, you know, in my consciousness either based on uh my my experience or uh or or my education. Uh and I think we really do a disservice to mm-hmm. LGBTQ people especially young people um if we don't right give them the consciousness to ask those sorts of questions um so that we are able to uh to access um our own history and not just right lgbtq people but i think everyone in in general because i always emphasize that uh lgbtq history is not um uh, some sort of, you know, special uh, narrative of history that is, you know, outside of the mainstream, it's, mm-hmm. it's over to the side. It, it, in fact, it is, is central and right. Uh, history of the LGBTQ community um, is mm-hmm. in and of itself a significant part of uh, U.S. history and U.S. history is right. LGBTQ people um, because, we have to tell the full story. And so if we're Mm -hmm. telling the full story, right, that uh, involves telling the story of people that uh, are often uh, excluded from the mainstream narrative. Mm -hmm.
0: There's a quote that silly me it's 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 right in the title (laughs) we have a past but not a history (laughs) i was looking through my notes and i'm just drawing an absolute blank silly me uh just associated with what the uh, what you just said and and um how i quoted you that it goes to what davis was saying in her time and i guess why she was inspired or or uh prompted to start collecting oral history and then the different things that would make up, I guess, a physical history, that we have a past, but not a history. And, you know, that's also part of the challenge and the precariousness of our equality and our human rights. You know, rights are something that can be given and taken away depending on who's in power. And, you know, we've seen the the challenges, you know, under the the last President of the United States, let's not say that person's name. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we see the ups and downs. And we also see, you know, the the pushback in the United States right now, you know, Republicans uh, that have control over more control in in the different um, states that are trying to um, make it next to impossible to teach, um, what's the correct data Is it the, the 1812 project or?
1: Yeah, they're particularly attacking uh, critical race theory.
0: Yeah. And so like that, uh, this, uh, these things all tie together in, in what you were just saying, you know, with it. it LGBTQ history is, is is central to the history. It's not just to the margins. It's not just, less like, oh, it's a secondary thought. Let's write some history about queers in the United States from the 1800s onwards. It's like, no, there's always been this representation and it's not been a misrepresentation per se, although I guess in some ways it has been. It's been an under or lack of
1: representation. Yeah, and when we teach people uh, the truth, uh-huh. That is liberating um that is em- empowering uh, right and, and because right it it's those uh things because it it shifts our consciousness and our understanding of um how the world works and in particular how um uh power operates that sort of uh-huh. understanding of um history becomes dangerous mm-hmm uh-huh. mm-hmm uh-huh. So I had mentioned to to you when we were, um,
0: talking about today's show, uh, something that struck me, um, about history. I mean, we can get very literal, we can read history, uh, we can listen to oral histories, we can watch, uh, whatever films might be available depending on what was photographed or, 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 shot with, with video, um, But sometimes what's missing that really um, helps someone understand is, you know, the feeling or the hedonic tone and, you know, hedonism is that aspect of, you know, that excess of really good feeling, but just we can, for example, you and I spoke uh, a couple of years ago with um, uh, Ken Galt. Uh, around stonewall and lgbtq pride and we were able to then have a conversation with somebody who is now 70 who existed and lived through that time who actually was in the bar the year before the stonewall riots and to get that emotional impression um to speak with someone for example that lived through and is still living um through the HIV AIDS, you know, pandemic when it first like hit hard and it was a death sentence is a very, I don't want to say different, but even more compelling way to understand history. And you had said something about the three-dimensional aspect of talking about history.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I actually want to go um, back to the previous point that you made and, and just clarify a bit. And I, and I think it all, it all ties in Mm -hmm. here. Um, so, um, Madeline Davis would frequently say, speaking specifically about the LGBTQ um, community in Mm -hmm. Western New York, uh, we have a past, but not a history. Mm -hmm. Uh, in other words, um, uh, we exist, we're here, uh, important things, uh, happen. Um, we did significant work, uh, but it's not viewed in a historical sense, right? Either because uh, it hasn't been documented and because it hasn't been documented, uh, if we don't have uh, that archival record, then we can't incorporate it into uh the narrative of uh who we are, right? Mm-hmm. Either as the LGBTQ community um or as uh a, a nation. And um, that's really uh I think that perspective was her driving force uh, in creating the Madeline Davis LGBTQ archive of um, of of West New York, um, because after uh, she published the book with uh, Liz Kennedy, right, a lot of people thought um, that's it. You you've published this very extensive uh, oral history of uh, Buffalo's working class lesbian community from the 1930s to the the 1960s, mm-hmm. uh, right? And she knew that that, that wasn't. It, that there was a, a lot more because she, you know, had had been um, part of the community since she, you know, came out in in the '60s, and, she, and she, so she knew that there was more to the story. And she specifically um, said in her introduction to the the anniversary edition of Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, uh, she knew she didn't want to write another book, but there was more history to document which is why you know she turned um uh to creating uh the the archive uh and i th- i think you know in terms of uh that for me connects to um oh before i i, I go there i want to make it uh another point and, and another way to think about this mm-hmm. um uh we have a past but not a history uh that i think is particularly useful uh comes from the the historian uh Hugh Ryan uh, and he's the author of a really uh excellent uh queer history of Brooklyn that's called when, when Brooklyn was queer uh and he talks about um not in that book but but in in uh some uh of his other uh articles the idea of history that is erased versus history that is not yet visible. Uh, so history that's erased, right? There, There's no trace of it. It doesn't exist. Uh, we can't uh, document, document it. Uh, it, it. It's lost in a sense. Versus history that's not yet visible mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. history is there. We just haven't made it visible in the sense of incorporating it into the story and understanding of um who we are and i think that relates to you know what what i would call um telling history in a way um that is Three dimensional. Uh, and I think we could, you know, think of that uh, in a couple different ways when we're thinking specifically about um, LGBTQ history, right? So telling the full story, mm-hmm. incorporating the history of the community uh, into the broader narrative of, you know, our understanding of the United States or who we are as a people, um, but also telling the full story of LGBTQ history and not having these blinders on where we look at everything through the lens of New York city um, or San Francisco. And, and this is why I think um, oral history can be so important, especially um, in the, the context of these underrepresented geographic uh, areas because it allows um, people to speak uh, in their own voice who aren't often, uh, their voice is not often represented uh, in uh, in the mainstream narrative. And one of the things that I uh, really learned from Madeline and that she impressed upon me is that when she was doing the research uh, with Liz Kennedy for Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, right? A lot of the women that they were interviewing uh, were women that she had previously known um, from the community who had mentored her as she was coming out uh, and that she felt a a real responsibility uh, to these women that she had to uh, represent their stories and their voices uh, accurately Um, that they needed to be, you know, fully dimensional um, people and to tell their stories uh, in a way that positioned them uh, as significant um, figures within history. not Mm -hmm. just, you know, history of Buffalo, not just lesbian history, but history Mm -hmm. in, in general, because... Um, because they, they were, um, you know, and something that she, she really, uh, imparted to, to me in terms of thinking about my own work where I was then, you know, telling the story of what happens to the, the community, uh, after, you know, her work ended, the the book, um, leaves off in 1965, um, was that, right, I also had a responsibility, um, to these people, um, uh, as well, mm-hmm. who were not, uh, not research subjects <laughs> who are also, you know, members of, um, my community and, and made it possible, right. For me to, uh, to do, uh, the work I'm, I'm doing in terms of, you know, further documenting LGBTQ history and, um, and in, in Western New York, uh, and, Uh, Again, when we're talking something outside of that mainstream bicoastal narrative, it's so important to me uh, to represent um, people as, you know, fully realized three-dimensional individuals, not as, uh, you know, kind of a flat Mm -hmm. set of characteristics.
0: So kind of reiterating what you just said, Uh, Jeff, uh, something you wrote in your article was that Davis had helped you believe in the value of fighting to make unsung queer lives visible. And you quoted the activist Marion Wright Edelman, who said, you can't be what you can't see. And, you know, I think that's such a brilliant, insightful, such a short uh, statement that there's something very powerful to be said about and, and it goes back to our, our opening discussion about, you know, can you be a fully realized queer person, however you identify, if you're living rurally or in the Rust Belt, or is it required that you actually have to move to a big coastal city or metropolitan area to be a fully realized queer?
1: Yeah, yeah uh, and uh, yeah, I think um, the the work that... Malin did is so significant. And I I refer to her, I believe in the article as a beacon of possibility, um, because, um, I, I can't remember exactly why or how, but, you know, for a while, all that was rattling around in my brain in terms of my knowledge of, um, Queer history in Buffalo was her name. I don't know where I got it from. I just, you know, knew there was this woman, Madeline Davis, who had done uh, really important things for uh, the the community here um, and, and beyond. And then, you know, when I uh, actually read her work and met her, it, she really... Uh, allowed me to realize that uh, you could be a queer historian from the Rust Belt and that there was value in looking at the history of this community or in looking at things from a more holistic uh, three-dimensional perspective, getting outside of that, uh, that, that bi-coastal uh, narrative. Uh, and uh, right. I think it's a, as I said um, before, you can't look for something that you don't, if you don't know that it exists or that you should be, looking Um, like someone has something has to happen Mm -hmm. or someone has to give you something that implants that that question um in in your head uh she was the the person that uh really did that for me at least initially
0: well it's interesting i made a note um sort of attached to this idea um you were talking about when she became politicized and then identified as a gay liberationist and uh, started connecting with other radical thinkers. And of course, at the time um, in, in the seventies studying the tactics of the the Black Panther party Mm. for self defense, which a lot of um, gays and lesbians did at that time. So they could be politically active and visible, but could also, you know, be safe if they needed to physically protect themselves. Um, And you cite that she be, that she became involved in the lesbian feminist movement, and and this is the thing in the seventies. Uh, Duberman Martin Duberman talks about has the gay movement failed? Uh, the, the the split in the seventies between the radical uh, gay groups and then between gays and lesbians when when lesbians were, um, I guess, seeking greater political and social identity that had to do with feminism, but then there was a rift between feminism and and lesbians. But There's always been these tensions, right? Um, But Davis always found importance in working in mixed gay and lesbian and later LGBTQ organizations. And it made me think about our conversation here about, you know, we're all seeking as human beings, acceptance, inclusion, freedom. Whereas, some of our political theorists, some of our queer leaders are really pushing for community in the sense of creation of community or identification of a geo specific community. And, you know, what's more important? Well, well, they both are, but I just thought I'd I'd bring up that way of looking at, um, the aspect that you can be openly queer in a rural community, um, perhaps in some ways, even more easily so, um, than in, in, in a big city. I'm going to ask you to expand on that. (laughs) Sure.
1: Why, from your perspective?
0: In, in, in some ways, um, in, in, you know, this is what, certainly a contentious idea, I would think. Um, and I'm thinking more now, maybe not so much in the seventies. Um, there are far more, uh, I guess you could say, queers leaving the city uh, to find peace and quiet or just to be who they want to be in in smaller towns or rural communities. And all of that perhaps rests on the shoulders of some of this earlier queer liberation. Um, And so instead of trying to create community and individuals are now in some ways um uh, leaving these big metropolitan cities because there's a certain level of acceptance because there's a certain level of inclusion that would allow them to uh, go elsewhere where there maybe isn't safety in numbers um and just to focus on living their lives in a different way
1: it- yeah sure or um that right maybe uh people today feel like um they don't fit into uh our dominant perception of like what an urban <laughs> queer existence mm-hmm. is right and they they want um something else right and of course there's you know incredible um Uh, diversity within the lgbtq spectrum i guess i would i would also think uh you know if we're we're talking about um the 70s or even today right in like smaller uh mid-sized cities or communities um that the community is smaller Mm -hmm. so you know numerically uh, and so if you want to create change and get stuff done, uh, you might have to work with a, a wider range of, um, people, whereas, um, in a bigger place that might, uh, not always necessarily, um, be the case, right? So, you know, um, um in, in New York city, right, um, uh, it could be that you know the lesbian community is large enough that uh, you could work solely within that community uh, and and still create um, change. And I, I think uh, Malin's perspective was that um, she saw value in in being in um, women only spaces and. Uh, and organizations um but there couldn't just be that that she also needed to um, work with uh other people to move things forward in the context of uh, of western new york mm-hmm. A- and also um, you know how we define um community and, and the parameters of our community, because um, one of the things that, that uh, she said to me uh, was, you know, I came out in uh, a mixed community. I didn't come out in um, just a lesbian community. So I wasn't going to completely, you know, break away and uh, just be involved with other lesbians um because my the way that I saw my community was was bigger than that uh and, and and again feeling that sense of uh responsibility to to community that I think is so significant in terms of um doing this work mm-hmm.
0: that's actually a very significant um perhaps unique quality about her from, from the little I know about her and mostly reading your materials on her in that from that particular time period of her becoming politically active, most individuals, however they identified kind of streamlined into like the fight for a singular identity, like gay men's rights or women's issues as a lesbian and as a feminist or trans rights, for example, um, not a lot of, the, you know, I could be wrong, but it just seems like from that period, there, there weren't a lot of people that, um, could, could embrace the diversity at that time. And, and you would be able to better explain, you know, that, 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 that tension in in the seventies and the eighties where there were, there were a lot of yeah. political movements that were intersecting and they were kind of demanding, or, or maybe it was very challenging to try and have a foot in each one because the various organizations so strongly wanted to identify with their own ideals.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, some of the splitting um, along identity lines that we see um, happening after the emergence of the gay liberation phase of the movement uh post nineteen sixty nine or post Stonewall some of that is inevitable right because if you're having a um growing uh, consciousness and awareness of your yourself um as a queer person or as a gender non conforming person um Obviously, you're going to realize that uh, within this kind of broader uh, grouping of gender and sexual minorities, that there's differences and you're going to want to, right, explore those differences and the fact that everyone isn't oppressed in in the same way. Um, uh, and that some people were uh, experiencing uh, multiple oppressions simultaneously, uh, or also that there might be... Um, some suspicion towards, uh, people who, uh, identified differently, uh, than you or that there was right. A a lack of understanding of those differences, I think, particularly surrounding, um, uh, trans identities. Um, but that wasn't universally the case with, um, everyone, right? There was gay men who um, didn't have a misogynistic perspective towards women in the movement. There was women that uh, saw the importance of working with um, gay men, and there was lesbians who were accepting of uh, of trans women. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, uh, well, that, that was the case on on a, a broad level, but... Um, to an extent uh, universally that, that wasn't true of uh, every person who gets involved in uh, gay liberation. Right. Well, let's um,
0: focus in a little bit more clearly, not clearly uh, on, on this idea of idols, heroes and Mm -hmm. and legends. Mm -hmm. So I just want to read a, a paragraph and then have you, speak to that, because this is a very important, um, not just for LGBTQ history, but for all of history. So you write, as a fellow historian, I'm wary of labeling Madeline as a legend, hero, or icon. Such terms, though seemingly complementary, can have the opposite effect. The status of icon can flatten someone's complicated humanity under its weight, Such terms also reinforce the false idea that change happens because of the efforts of extraordinary individuals, though in most cases, those individuals are heterosexual men. Change Mm -hmm. happens when people with a common purpose come together, organize, and work toward a shared vision. Madeline could not have achieved what she did without the support and context of her community of queer people from Buffalo, end quote.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, so I'll uh, preface my um, comments by saying, I say at a different point that I don't, I don't claim to have uh, the definitive interpretation of her life and legacy. Um, What I, what I have is my interpretation as uh, one historian, as, as one um, person. And so if people want to, view her as a you know a hero or uh an icon that's fine everyone is you know in, in entitled to and and people are complex uh right so we we um might have different interpretations of uh of the the same person people are multifaceted Um, but I always feel like my responsibility, uh, as a historian is first and foremost to represent history accurately. And that includes representing, um, people accurately. Uh, and I think if we relegate her to that status of, um, hero or icon, it actually diminishes some of that, um, complexity, because it it flattens someone uh into our notion of what those things are and sometimes it um holds that person up to uh an unrealistic uh standard that um is, is hard to live up to or or doesn't um capture the nuances of who they were uh, as a person. Uh, so second, um, it's historically inaccurate because that's just not how history, um, works. Things don't move and change, uh, and evolve because of the efforts of, uh, singular, extraordinary heroic individuals. Um, things, you know, if we look at, uh, history, things change and evolve, um, because of, Movements when um, communities or people with uh, a shared purpose come together and organize to create um, some sort of change. Um, so you know, I think I would go so far as to argue uh, that um, there's no heroes. There's only uh, communities uh, because that's that's how how um, history actually works and how how change. Um, happens and then finally um, and this was somewhat of my own experience initially when we put that person in the status of hero or icon Mm -hmm. it creates this perception that this person is extraordinary in some way and so I can never live up to what they did Mm -hmm. I can never right? Do something similar. Maybe they created change, but I can't do that. Right. And and I think that that's completely, uh, false because that, that person was, uh, was just uh, a person. They weren't, um, superhuman. Do I think, um, Madeline was extraordinary in a lot of ways? Um, yes, but what I mean by that is uh, not that she was superhuman, but she had a personality and a disposition that was well-suited for this um, this kind of work. Uh, she was, uh, you know, she started as a performer and a musician. She had this incredible um, stage presence, this magnetic personality that you just wanted to be around her and when she you know spoke people listened and uh, you would hang on every word and she was just wonderfully personable and and funny so who she was 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 well suited to this kind of work uh and i, I think she's also extraordinary in the sense of her perseverance that you know she was involved in in gay activism for uh 50 years um that's a long time to do uh this kind of work at the level Mm -hmm. that she did uh without burning out Um, getting
0: just very pissed off (laughs)
1: yeah yeah Yeah. or getting disillusioned or right depressed or um -hmm. so just that that perseverance and that uh that tenacity um that she had and You know, originally, I was quite starstruck by her. And when I was doing my research, starting to do my research uh, into the gay liberation movement in Buffalo, uh, which is the focus of a book I'm working on, Uh, people in the community that I was interviewing and talking to were saying, uh, well, why don't you talk to Madeline Davis? you have to talk to Madeline Davis? Have you talked to Madeline yet? And I I felt that uh, I had to get to a certain level of understanding and knowledge and expertise before I could um, talk to her uh, because I was seeing her right in that icon position. Mm. Um, But, then when i actually got to know her and talk to her and the more that i did um this work and she really became a cheerleader for uh you know what i was doing she um came to my uh events and she would call me on the phone and 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 we would talk about things um uh i started to see her not as this icon figure but someone who was just another member of my community. And if she could do this work, then I could do it too, but in my own way. Mm-hmm.
0: You you made me think of something when you were talking about the journey from almost being too intimidated to talk to her because mm-hmm. she, you had elevated her to a certain level on like a... Uh, which is an aspect of expectation, meaning you've got this idea of who she is. And if we uh, cr- turn someone into an icon, we can't really see them critically. And yeah. so if something happens or we learn something about that person, we're like, that can just totally disrupt one's impression. Now, and, and as human beings, we're flawed. We all make mistakes. And that goes back to, Uh, what I quoted from you, that it sort of flattens out the humanity of the person if we turn them into a legend. Um, We have to recognize that our successes come from falling down, making mistakes, missed opportunities and such, but these are the hard lessons that we have to learn to get to where we want to go. So I, I think this would be a nice segue. Can you tell us more about you know, the book that you're working on. And as you write in um, the articles that um, this is an an oral history, or it's going to be a written um, book based on interviews you're doing that is going to pick up from um, the, the book that Madeline Davis wrote. So tell us a little bit more about that. Sort of what is the purpose of the book and who are some of the, the people that you have interviewed or are still planning to?
1: Uh, so, um, <laughs> you know, the, the uh, genesis of this um, goes back to Madeline creating the Davis archive um, of the LGBTQ community in, in Western New York Um because again, she knew that there was more history. There was more of a story to, to tell. Um, so she wanted to assemble, um, those materials. So, um, someone could do that. And, you know, I just kind of like <laughs> fell, uh, head first, um, into this, this work, um, because I, had done a, a series of talks on LGBTQ history uh, at the uh, the Buffalo Public Library, uh, the downtown branch of the the public library, and from doing that, I started you know meeting people in uh, the the community. And there was this wonderful um, couple who would come to my talks and they said, uh, well, our neighbor was in the Managing Society in Buffalo. Why don't you come over and interview him? And so I said, okay, sure. I could do that. Not exactly knowing what I was um, getting into and, Uh, he had really, a really great uh, memory and stories. And, you know, suddenly I just saw this like whole story, this whole narrative kind of click into place um, in my head. And then that led me to researching more uh, intensively in the Davis archive. Um, And I realized that there was a story to be told um here in a in a way um that it hadn't told before because again when we focus on the history of the gay liberation movement uh it's very focused on uh, new york city san francisco uh you know maybe uh, la maybe chicago maybe washington dc um, but primarily those places and then so i started questioning well but what does the story look like and how is it different um when that that narrative is set in a place like buffalo and how does that um maybe change or expand some of the ways that we think about uh lgbtq uh history in in general and uh you know and the archive was created um, so that people could, uh, tell these stories. Uh, and I also think, you know, um, Madeline and and the other members of the, the community, uh, that, uh, worked initially in creating and uh, assembling the archive. Um, they anticipated that someone like me would, uh, come along and would uh, really benefit from this story, not just on an intellectual level, um, but on a personal level in terms of uh, how it it changed, uh, how I thought about myself as a a person, as a historian, as a a scholar, uh, as, uh, you know, and how I saw kind of my place in history, and this, this larger story. Uh, so I, I, I think, uh, again, and I, I pointed this out before when I was talking about, um, telling history in a three-dimensional way, if we're thinking about, uh, you know, smaller cities and communities, uh, oral history is such an excellent tool. Uh, when I say oral history, I'm talking about, um, using, um, the oral narratives of people who um, participated or involved right in a particular uh, moment in time using uh, their oral narratives uh, as a way to help us as historians reconstruct um, the past that that's such an important um, tool because there's not a lot of other sources right that we can uh, can go to uh, you know, to, to learn about the history of the LGBTQ community, uh, in, in, in Buffalo, right? There's right. not like copious volumes written on that subject. So you, you have to actually talk to the people, um, that, uh, lived it. Um, but I'm, a, I'm a different kind of scholar than, um, Madeline and, um, Liz Kennedy. Now, um, Liz is primarily an anthropologist, uh, and she was the founder of, uh, the women's studies, um, program at the university, uh, at at Buffalo. Uh, and so the book kind of takes on a very, uh, anthropological, um, Uh, aspect or lens where each chapter, uh, using the oral histories that they did, um, with right, working class lesbians from Buffalo, looking at different, um, aspects of the, the community. So the different, um, bars that they went to and what the bar culture was like and different, um, types of bars, um, uh, butch femme lesbian relationships, uh, how lesbians would dress, um, lesbian, uh, sexuality and how they organize their, their relationships. So their approach is, is more, uh, anthropological and, uh, thematic. Um, and mine is, is my work is more of a a narrative, um, Historiography. I mean, uh, you know, telling uh, more of a chronological uh, story that Mm -hmm. is hopefully engaging and uh, interesting and um, captivates people and draws them into a different aspect of LGBTQ history that they might not know about. Um, But uh, what I have retained or you know a similarity um that i'm i'm emulating from madeline liz's book uh is including quotations um f- from the oral histories that i have done um with people that allow right the, the, the people i'm writing about to actually speak uh in their own voice mm-hmm.
0: Well, this has been something you've been working on for a while, and there were some challenges, delays, and being able to meet with these people because of you know various stages of lockdown due yeah. to do to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, where are you at now? What, like, when when are you hoping to have it published, or at least a a final draft out to the publisher?
1: <laughs> i uh don't I, know yet. <laughs> I don't I don't know yet because I decided um you know when everything uh shut down because of the pandemic and it was um harder mm-hmm. to interview people and I had to figure that out and I didn't have um access to archival materials that I was going to need right and mm-hmm. and, and you know as I continued to do the research my um knowledge in my frame kind of expanded and expanded and expanded to the mm-hmm. point where i um also needed to look at uh, materials and archives that were uh outside of the Davis archive and outside a, of buffalo in order to um you know to tell this story in the most in-depth and in complex um way uh i just arrived at the perspective of um it's better to do it right do this mm-hmm. project right mm-hmm. than to rush and just right finish something for the sake of finishing it right and again i think it goes back to that that lesson of um having a responsibility to one's um community and and the people that uh, that you're, you're, you're writing about whose stories that you're, you're telling. Um, so it's, it's going to get done when it gets, uh, gets done. And I, I will <laughs> point out that, um, <clears throat> Madeline and Liz worked on boots of leather, or slippers of gold for 15 years. Hmm. Right, because at that time there wasn't a lot of models for doing this sort of work. Um, but they really like put put in that time to, uh, I think, uh, tell the story right to right represent these right. women's experiences um, accurately. So I also kind of said to myself, well, <laughs> you know, if I'm under fifteen years, that's <laughs> that's, that's good. But it it it. Um, it probably won't be that that long um yeah. i assume things will pick up and, I'll, and uh, I'll have a clearer sense when uh archives uh you know, start uh reopening uh again now that we're getting into a different phase of the pandemic yeah.
0: but it just reminds me of a a quote from wang bai who's one of the early commentators of the Tao Teaching. ching it's a, in my actual last podcast where he writes being good at making quick progress lies in not hurrying and being good at reaching goals lies in not forcing one's way yeah. this idea of like not forcing um going with yeah. the flow and it's it's so challenging uh when you know if if you had like Icon syndrome. You're like, Oh my God, she did this. Madeline Davis did this. Now I've got to do this. And you're going to create so many expectations about things. And there's something to be said about doing it right, but without the, uh, with not through the lens of being perfect, uh, but just knowing that things change and things evolve, especially in something as large and complex as, as a book. And even more so when you're doing interviews with individuals and you will probably just get new ideas because you're confronted with new information that may have only been trapped inside the memory of that person you're speaking with. I want to read the last quote from your article and, and ask you to sort of think about how this has impacted you or how it is affecting um, the, the work that you, you do today. And, um, this is something that Madeline Davis said to you about her role Mm. in Buffalo's LGBTQ history. And she said, what I think people should know is this. I love being gay. I loved being gay when I came out in the 1960s. I love being gay today. Being gay means being a part of something bigger than yourself to create change. And just to add to that, I think that's a really interesting um, way of talking about the personal being political. So how might this affect you? How has that, how did, you chose that quote for a reason to end this article. So it must've been very inspirational in some way.
1: Yeah. And, and what, so what I don't um, mention in, the article, um, is I asked her this question because when um, she and, and Liz Kennedy were interviewing the women for their book, they would end the interviews by asking them, What do you think people need to know, uh, about uh, lesbian history in? um buffalo right so giving these women the the agency to shape the the historical record or to shape their own history um and so I kind of, right, turned that that question back around on her uh, as the subject versus her as the interviewer and, and said, you know, you would ask the woman this, I'm going to ask you the same thing, but a, a broader framework, right? What do people um, need to know about you and, and uh, LGBTQ history in Buffalo? And um, what a great... What a great response. And I think it just uh, sums up and encapsulates for me um, who she was as a person, everything I learned from her uh, and how she impacted me and um, continues to, uh, to to impact um, who I am and what, what I'm doing that uh she started to see rape being gay in this um politicized sense it was bigger than her um own experience that she doesn't articulate this sense of shame which is also um why i think she was so well poised to do the work right. that um, she did that there is something uh beautiful and transformative um about difference and that it's about community. Um right, so that she is emphasizing that aspect of her experience. I did all these things, mm-hmm. but I did that in the context of community and, and something um in something being you know, bigger than uh than than I was or that I could have accomplished um as an individual and I I, I just think that that it, it, she articulated so well um her own significance and impact it,
0: she you know I don't know the person but everything I've read she sounds like she was a very humble um person which sometimes people take to uh mean maybe meek but that doesn't that's not what humble means it just means she wasn't self-aggrandizing she she did the work that she felt i guess was important to do because like that quote says um it it meant that it was part of something bigger than just herself and she wanted to be that change and create that change which is lovely
1: and and i would uh, because as you said uh I, uh you don't know the person um there's uh recordings of interviews with her um there's an uh interview that she did with NPR um about speaking at the DNC in 1972 and there's also a website um that's called queer music heritage um that's run by jd doyle and jd doyle did um, quite an extensive um interview with her about um her song stonewall nation obviously but her uh entire career as an activist that that um you can uh access through the site. So if people are interested, I would encourage them to, and that's a phenomenal uh, interview. So I would encourage people to um, seek those out uh, and uh, listen to her talk about her experience in her, uh, in her own voice, um, because that will give you more of a, a, a sense of who she was.
0: Amazing. Well, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the show for our deeper, explorative conversations. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.